The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS, the standard in the rare coin grading business. It bears repeating, but PCGS has reopened its operations, their Orange County, California office, where expert graders are working in a safe environment to evaluate, authenticate, and grade your rare coins and other numismatic items. To see how PCGS is protecting themselves and your collectibles in this unprecedented time, go to www.pcgs.com to learn more. The Coin Week podcast is always a good time for me to talk coins with some of my favorite people in the rare coin industry. We always try to capture and present a version of the kinds of conversations that we would have off the record and on the bourse floor, either on or after hours, at coin shows. So it is in some way therapeutic to get to spend the afternoon picking the brain and shooting the breeze with some of the most talented and connected dealers and experts in the field. Today, we have one of my favorite people to work with, Russ Augustine of AU Capital Management and Rare Co-op. Russ was a wonderkind in the numismatic industry when he burst into the scene as a master of coin pricing and analysis and was one of the leading buyers of the rare coin market when he worked with Blanchard. Having sold millions and millions of dollars of coins over the years, he has gained an understanding not only of coins, collectors, and what drives the market, but what is important to understand when buying rare coins. Throughout it all, he has remained a good guy, a straight shooter. I pick his brain for what he sees in the market and ask him how he's been spending his time now that the traditional avenues of dealer-to-dealer -dealer trading have given way to internet and phone buying. You'll enjoy what you hear next on the Coin Week Podcast. Hi, Russ. Thank you for joining me in the Coin Week Podcast. Hi, Charles. How are you? Oh, it's good. For those who do not know you that well, though, even though, you know, I think we featured you uh, many times in Coin Week articles and videos, uh, but you really cut your teeth in the industry being at the cutting edge of analyzing rare coin price movement. And I can't think of a better person to have on at this moment in time when there's so many questions about what's actually happening in the rare coin market. So thank you so much for taking a chunk of time out of your busy day, uh, busy working day, and I'm sure you're working uh, pretty hard, uh, to discuss your thoughts on where we're at right now and where we're heading as an industry. Yeah, we are. We're actually considering ourselves to be an essential business with all the bullion demand lately. So where is the coin market right now? Uh, my gut tells me, despite what one might expect, that there's actually a lot more happening in the market than we've seen in the past few months. Um, you know, obviously we have this shift uh, in the way we do business, but I see very strong prices, which indicates to me that there is very strong demand at the present time. Well, your your gut might be right, and and it's I think it's come to as a surprise to a lot of us. Um, in the middle of March, uh, when the uh, Baltimore show was canceled and the Stacks auction moved to their offices in the West Coast, 
I believe that there was a collective holding of the breath to figure out what was going to happen that in that sale. And uh, much to everyone's surprise, I thought the prices were pretty strong and stable. Um, it seemed to me that, you know, coins above 100,000 were probably uh, pretty good buys, you know, some even considered cheap. Anything under 100,000 and, uh, you know, stopping at 10,000 were right on. I, and, and it really kind of shocked me. I, we we ended up buying nothing. I had a conversation with a leading collector, and I you know I won't drop his name, uh, but clearly he's one of the whales. And uh, you know he told me that his financial picture hasn't been affected one bit uh, due to this, and that he's still an active and aggressive buyer in the market. So you know on the one hand it must be nice to have that level of wealth and confidence. It's a sentiment that's little jarring to me to hear at this present time. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, there are collectors who are seizing on this opportunity uh, to get a competitive advantage in hopes of buying important material at discount pricing. And I don't know if they're succeeding at that because I, st I still see strong prices. Uh, and given that there is a certain predilection for this type of collector to view smart buying in rare coins and other collectibles as an alternative to stocks, uh, seeing coin prices at the upper end remain strong in the face of the financial market taking a beating must make these guys feel smart. Uh, I'm not sure this is a sentiment that conveys as well to the rest of us, uh, you know, whose ability to participate at whatever level of the market we play in requires us to have stable jobs and a sense of financial security. I agree. Yes, I can see that. Um, it was interesting to note that when the stock market started going down last month, uh, the price of gold also went down, and that was a kind of challenging for many people to understand why. And we believe that uh, those who were overextended had to sell assets in order to cover losses in the paper assets. But sure enough, you know, now that we look back maybe 30 days later, uh, the price of gold had firmed up and is now surpassed where it was in recent highs. And it looks like it's going to continue to uh, increase in, in, uh, in price. This is the underlying spot gold price. It's going to increase in price uh, over the next several months. Russ, how, how would a bull market today for metals differ from the pre-86 bull market? Then we didn't have the U.S. and other sovereign mints producing millions of gold bullion coins for the market, as we do today. Uh, and it's apparent that modern bullion coins have had an impact in the sale of generic pre-1933 gold, what we might call numismatic coins. Uh, but having said that, I think it's been a well-established phenomena that so goes the bullion market goes to the rare coin market. Is this likely to continue to be the case? Uh, I think that in a market like this, both uh, the modern products as well as the traditional pre-33 uh, gold numismatic products or vintage coins have the same kind of demand and the same kind of draw. But there's a different kind of buyer. The buyer who is uh, taking on both of these gold assets really uh, is just tweaking his diversity in, in a gold holding rather than uh, wondering what denomination is best. We've noticed that there have been several um, very large 
days of a million dollars or more here at uh, my affiliate company, Rarecoa, where um, there, uh, the, the gold that is bought and sold, it really doesn't matter as long as it's, you know, it kind of in uh, easily identified denominations. Now, denominations being a $10 Liberty or a $10 Indian or $20 Liberty or $20 St. Gaudens or a Canadian Maple Leaf, Krugerrand, or American Eagle. I see a wide disparity in the bid and ask for junk silver, for instance, with uh, pricing being all over the place. Are, are we seeing a situation where buyers lack an efficient platform to readily trade pre-33 gold and pre-64 silver coins? Or is this volatile bid-ask situation a factor of the supply chain being challenged due to restrictions imposed upon us by uh, our government's response? Well, I think I definitely think there's a demand for uh, 90% silver. Um, at first, there was a distinction between the denominations of dimes, quarters, and half dollars. But within weeks, that distinction just disappeared. People were trying to buy whatever they could. Now, the disparity between what you could buy a $1,000 face bag for from the beginning of March to the beginning of April was was incredible. I mean, at some point, I was seeing as much as two or three thousand dollar difference in the prices that were being advertised on the internet platforms. I know here in the office that uh, there were several bags that were sold for sixteen thousand dollars when we were buying them for twelve thousand five hundred, and. Um, you know, we weren't buying them for twelve five and selling them for sixteen. It's just that that's somebody wanted this a bag. We sold it for sixteen, and the next day we were able to buy several at twelve five. Uh, that just goes to show that the price reporting mechanisms for spot gold and silver are kind of unreliable right now. We kind of believe that you know Kitco, which a lot of people use, is more of a a forex price, which I'm led to believe is where you, you know a price uh, at which you cannot take delivery, but that the COMEX price, where um, you get the futures involved, is a price at which you can take delivery. And COMEX seems to be higher than um, the Kitco price, and I think that that's the real distinction here. The real bullion price that we feel is active right now is with the COMEX. I wanted to convey to people the level of craft that comes into how professional evaluates markets and specifically your method, which propelled you to the top of the industry when you were very young. And this is when you were a key buyer with Blanchard early in your career. How do you look at coin transactions and auction and sales data different than someone, you know, on the outside might see the market? Well, um, one thing I can say, and it's a good question because I'm not sure that everybody really has the same technique, but one thing that I always do is I look at all of the available numbers. I just don't take one number as the gospel truth. Um, after all, we're dealing with a vintage item. I mean, it's an antique. It's a, it's a relic. It's, it's a piece of art. Um, so the inherent value is based upon what someone will pay for it. But if you can look at, uh, do a comparative analysis, which is what I'm, which I, I do all the time, and I'm 
pretty well noted for. You do a comparative analysis of similar or substantially similar products, you're going to come up with um, an intuitive feeling as to what the value of the item that you're, you're examining is at the time that you're offered it. I think this is a critical skill because on the one hand, these markets are very thin and illiquid. But on the other, you could have three coins that might superficially seem similar, but each of these coins could have radically different values to prospective buyers. That's true. I have a great example. I mean, just last week, um, there's been a lot of demand for dated St. Gaudens coins, especially in uh, 64 grade and better. Um, some of these coins are really expensive in MS65, and, I'll, and the two dates that are, are I'll uh, illustrate are the 1909 Philadelphia and the 1920 Philadelphia. The the 1920 has a uh, a CAC population in say 64 64 plus that is double that of the 1909. Yet the price of the two coins stay the same or are pretty much relatively the same. Why shouldn't that 1909 which is half as available as the 1920 be worth twice as much. So it's that kind of logic that we use in order to come up with ideas and uh, gambles, if you will, risk-taking, educated risk-taking. <laughs> it's that kind of logic that we use to make our decisions. But that's, that's the, that emphasizes the comparative analysis. Do you feel that in the current market where coins essentially have to trade silent scene, that it's more difficult to uh, do proper market analysis? Yes, I do. Um, and I also think that, uh, you know, had the Internet not been established as much as it had been before this new normal that we're living through right now, um, we'd be in deep trouble. But I think that the the Internet platforms – are only going to become more and more useful to buyers and sellers. Um, we've got plenty of information at our hands to make educated decisions. I don't see that slowing down. Um, and maybe just maybe, you know, coin shows are a thing of the past. As long as you have a return privilege, if you're not happy with a coin, uh, you're doing your due diligence, do some educated research, comparative analysis if you can, you should be able to make a good price and make a good purchase. Is there any change in the volume of material that's coming into the market? I mean, we generally think of the advanced collections being put together by older collectors. And, and a lot of them, in estate planning, you're trying to, you know, alleviate the pressure and stress of the people you leave behind. So I do wonder whether events like this speed up the time frame for some people, where they realize, hell, I might not be going to that next coin convention or auction. Maybe I should think about wrapping this up and liquidating my holdings so that that next custodian of these treasures can enjoy them for the time being. I think it's too premature, but um, I hate to say that the death count continues to rise. Um, there's going to be a lot of estate sales. You know, and if one or two of those happens to be large collections of coins that could influence a market, um, such as several of the collections we've seen over the past decade, uh, Gene Gardner, Brent Pogue. I mean, that, those kinds of collections 
uh, it'd be very interesting to see what happens. We certainly have weathered those, the sale of those collections happening pretty much all at one time. Uh, there was a lot of money that had to be spent on a lot of coins within a seven-year period, and it all got absorbed, and perhaps that's why many of the middle, midstream coins depreciated in value. I think uh, that many of the coins uh, that we would normally think are that are um, scarce, not necessarily rare, have actually come down 30 to 40 percent, and they're they're trading for around where they uh, were 15 years ago. Had these big collections not come up on the market and absorbed a lot of that liquidity, these coins may not have dropped in value. With the current pandemic, uh, if it's not handled or harnessed in on a, on a time-efficient basis, this could affect the market for coins, but I think, once again, they will be absorbed. There might be a downturn in prices for the more common or scarce coins, but then we will come right back again. Now, that all being said, the top the top tier items, they always have a buyer. Nobody ever gets upset that there are too many nice coins coming to the market and turn their nose up on them. You know, many of the nicest coins that we have uh, have long pedigrees and form our understanding of the issue and the series and tell us what's possible to collect. You know, no one ever says, oh, one or two of the finest 1793 Ameridot cents is coming to the market. Whoop-de-doo. No, you know, when, when material like this comes to the market, you know, it doesn't matter when it happens. And these are opportunities, uh, and they're nearly as rare as the coins themselves. And a, a serious collector may only have one or two shots at uh, buying a specific coin in the course of their entire lifetime. And so with the Garner sale, the Newman sale, the Pogue sale, these, these recent mega sales, and there have been many other great named numismatic collections that come to the market in recent years. For many buyers, these were touchstone events and foundational events for the building of their, their collections. Well, that's a good observation. I, I, I worry that that's balanced with the interest in coins that uh, you, you could collect on cherry pick when you were running a paper route which doesn't happen anymore, whereas the people who might be buying American Eagles nowadays like it because it's a set that they only have to worry about once a, once a year and get that, that one example that has the current year on it. Um, you know, so it, it hopefully, hopefully people will look at a Barber Dime set and say, you know, the prices are pretty darn cheap. I can buy an uncirculated set with the exception of a few of the key dates for a relatively little amount of money. You know, what's interesting is that just today I was researching an 1877 half-year copper pattern. Um, can you imagine the guy who stepped up and paid $28,000 for it in 1982 and then contrast that to 2009 to the same guy who paid $575,000 for the same coin? <laughs> can you imagine what the mentality is? <laughs> I've had this conversation with Scott Travers before. Uh, I'm a big advocate for more coins being affordable and a decrease of what I see as an artificial price level that props up certain series of coins that aren't as popular as they once were. And I consider the classic commemorative coin series to be one of those areas. And I feel that coin pricing should typically obey a demand supply model 
where demand dictates pricing levels so that so that coins appreciate when demand is up and depreciate in value when demand is down. And that way, coins can always find buyers at proper levels and we have an industry where material turns over and more people can participate. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's good. Some, you earlier mentioned the silver commemorative set. Now let's just take the 50-piece set uh, and I'll dissect what you just asked, like starting with that. Um, I always thought that it would be a great way to start a collection like that is to to start with those key dates because they seem to be so inexpensive. Um, the Alabama, the Hawaiian, the sesquicentennial, the Panama Pacific, the Missouri 2x4, the Grant Star. You know, there's seven keys in that series that once you buy those, the, the set is actually really easy to complete. Um, fast forwarding to Indian peace medals, well, the underlying theme on both the silver commemoratives and the Indian peace medals is our, our United States history. Um, Indian peace medals is an area that I found this completely undervalued in terms of uh, the bronze restrikes that occurred right around 1860. So I started getting interested in those some time back um, because it, each one of them has a very interesting tale surrounding the year that they were struck and, and that it was presented on the medal. Uh, and it's something that it's more than you're going to get out of a history book. Um, so it's, it's, I think if, if people are kind of go right to history, uh, which is always a popular theme and they stick with certain parts of history that they like, getting a coin that represents that part of history should be a pretty easy thing to do. Um, you know, I, and doing it in an, in an inexpensive way is even better, and especially if uh, all of a sudden you find out that it goes up in value. California fractional gold pieces are also a, a, a very un, under a misunderstood market. Uh, it's very complex. There's 575 different coins. And even right there, these are only, most of them are only worth in the hundreds and not the thousands. And there's a whole lot of story that goes along with those, especially the ones that were used as a currency, we believe, during the, um, the California gold rush. So when you look at the market for these coins, and I think all of these can be opportunities, do you find that what personally interests you has upside long-term? Because finding these things is now embedded in your DNA? Or do you feel a collector collects coins for the right? Or do you feel that if a collector collects coins for the right reason, pursuing quality, nice eye appeal pieces, pieces with significant stories and genuine scarcity, that this is the key to unlocking upside in the future? I like your question. Um, I'm not going to say that, that because I tend to turn to something, it tends to go up in value, and I certainly don't expect what I buy to go up in value. What I do find is that if I like something enough and that I spend a, a reasonable amount of time understanding it, it kind of all gels into an intuitive nature when it comes to being offered or having the opportunity to buy an item that comes your way. 
the funny uh, thing that I tell a lot of the dealers and clients that I work with, and without any hesitation or embarrassment, is that the coin finds you. You don't find the coin. But when that coin finds you, if you're comfortable enough to make a purchase because of your intuitive nature, well, it doesn't get any better than that. You know, a lot of people don't know what to think. You know, we have our gut reaction, and the key to that is reaction. I think we're being reactionary, doing what we're told, hoping that the geniuses that we've put in charge know what they're doing, that modern science is as great as we think it is, and that all of this can get resolved as soon as possible. We can go back to doing what we were doing with a renewed appreciation, maybe, of just how lucky we are to have these things in our lives. I know I can't wait to get out there. I mean, on a personal level, I'm tired of being cooped up. Uh, but what, what's your feeling? Uh, when do you think we're going to be back at it? You know, slinging coins in person and getting back to our pre-COVID coin lives. For me, I, I think it's probably going to take till 2021, maybe January fun. Well, the reason I'm optimistic about in the next 30 to 60 days is because uh, of the underlying movement in this in the precious metals markets. Um, in every market cycle that we've had in the past where precious metals have been surging up, you have um, this dovetailing in the numismatic markets, and even more so now with the Internet being the information resource that it is. As far as the participation, the, you know, human-to-human participation in coin shows, um, I think that it's going to ramp down a lot slower than it ramped up. I think it took, when was it, November to the middle of March for this to really ramp up to some sort of proportional basis where we all became alarmed. And now here it's uh, Easter, and we are now hearing that the state of California requires face masks when you walk into a grocery store. I think that it's going to, once we pass the, the hump, the statistical hump of this pandemic, that more and more people are going to want to see that it's safe to go back out and to meet new faces and shake new hands or bump new elbows. Uh, so 2021 fun. I'm a little skeptical, Charles, but it wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it, but I, I could certainly see a 2021 central states. Well, bottom line is uh, you do see yourself traveling again in the next calendar year. I do. I do. And I hope to be able to start getting back frequent flyer points because I think everybody's, everybody's lacking right now. <laughs> no, hopefully there'll be airlines by then. Oh, I'm sure there'll be in airlines, but there might be fewer of them. Okay, Russ. Uh, you have any cool coin stories? Anything that's crossed your desk in the past few weeks that uh, you can share with me? Well, um, yes, uh, yes, I have actually, and I, I'm not sure I should let this out of the bag, but it is. If you dig dug deep enough on the internet, you could find it. Um, I'm rapidly becoming somewhat of a shipwreck nerd when it comes to gold coins off of uh, U.S. shipwrecks. And, of course, we have, uh, you know, the brother Jonathan. We have the SS Central America. We have the SS New York. 
We have uh, the SS Republic. These are all coins that you can buy on the market that are certified, either by PCGS NGC. What is little known is that as uh, time goes on and the techniques for exploring underwater are improved, sometimes by leaps and bounds, there are a few more shipwrecks being uncovered with United States gold coins on. And two shipwrecks, actually steamboats, in other words, not SS but SB, have recently been recovered and coins, a few of them have been certified by NGC. Uh, that is the SB Pulaski and the SB North Carolina. So I'm super excited about this. These are actually classic head gold coins that have come up in very little quantity. But it just goes to show, I mean, and they're mint state. Uh, it just goes to show that what is now coming our way is this whole new era of coins that you never thought you'd find before that have a fantastic story to them that are uh, available in very little quantity but uh, are, are immensely desirable. Um, you know, so that's uh, that's something that I'm really looking forward to, you know, seeing in the, in the emerging market in the next few years. I think that we're going to maybe find a few more of these things, not to the extent of the SS Central America, but certainly to, uh, you know, something perhaps on the order of uh, the magnitude, which was small of the SS New York. You know, I, I always like seeing the shipwreck coins, to be honest. You know, I think these are time capsules. And, uh, you know, these wrecks, I mean, you, you know, they're significant um, for our appreciation and history. And I, and I think actually collecting coins and artifacts from wrecks is in some respects an, uh, an honoring of those who uh, lost their lives at sea in these tragic events. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, I'd rather see governments sort out a, a, a way to allow this to happen uh, in a safe and archaeological way than to just, you know, let this, uh, let this material rot at sea. And, uh, you know, because if it wasn't for capitalized private groups trying to salvage the stuff, we wouldn't have ingots and 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 uh, and and the SS Central America gold uh, coins and, uh, and and countless other artifacts that are just really fascinating. That's yeah, that's true. And you know, one of the things that I often think about, which I I think is just so cool, is that it, it was almost sport for countries to war against each other or even villages to war against each other. Now, established armies would actually have a traveling mint to pay the soldiers. And I bet, I'm pretty sure uh, that this is true, that before a an army went into battle, that they would bury their mint so that, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be stolen by anyone. And uh, only a few people would know where it is. But if that army got decimated, who's to say that the the champs, the the defeating army, knew where that mint was? You know. So here, all of a sudden, I think that this is responsible, and, and for the most part, on these wonderful, cool, ancient coins that we have available to us today, are being found by enterprising farmers and collectors and. Uh, hobbyists with metal detectors in clay pots that were buried before a battle. That's just a theory. I'd like to, 
I like to to wax on it for a little while, but you know, you can't say that that doesn't sound like there's some truth to it. Well, Russ, thanks for taking the time to join us today. You stay safe, keep buying those coins, and uh, I hope to see you soon. You too. Thanks. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. Remember, you can download every episode of the Coin Week podcast for free on the iTunes store or stream it online on our YouTube channel or on coinweek.com. I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.